Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was a national intelligence officer and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm chief of staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Burkina Faso, and we are joined by Kamisa Kamaha, a senior visiting expert for the Sahel at the U.S. Institute of Peace. She was Mali's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Digital Economy and Planning, and most recently, Chief of Staff to the President of Mali. Nicole, why don't you give us a quick breakdown on U.S. policy towards Burkina? Okay. The United States established its embassy in Burkina Faso, then known as Upper Volta, in 1961, one year after the country's independence. A former deputy chief of mission said, we had no special interests, just the standard ones. Most important to us is getting support for our positions on international issues, particularly at the United Nations. And the Upper Volta did support U.S. positions on Taiwan, at least until 1973. Development was a key focus, even though Upper Volta was not a priority country until the late 60s. In fact, there were more Peace Corps volunteers than U.S. embassy staff. The United States in particular stepped up during the droughts in the late 70s in the Sahel. But relations became rocky in the 1980s when Thomas Sankara came to power. While ambassadors managed to work with him, the Reagan administration pointed to his Marxist rhetoric and close ties with Gaddafi as reasons to paint Sankara as a dangerous threat to the United States. He did vote against the U.S. position at the U.N., blame the U.S. for coup plotting, and kicked out the Peace Corps. U.S. relations with Sankara's successor, who was often accused of being the mastermind behind Sankara's murder, weren't much better. The new leader, Blasey Campari, did not depart much from Sankara's less-than-friendly attitude towards the United States. He continued the country's close ties to Gaddafi, allowing his country to be a transshipment point for Libyan arms to Charles Taylor in Liberia and the Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone. It took years of interagency discussions to decide whether these nefarious activities had ceased and if it was permissible to increase engagement in Burkina Faso. At the same time, as the country's ties to bad actors diminished, its role of regional negotiator and donor darling became more important. The Burkinabe could really execute on a World Bank grant. One ambassador said the country's bureaucracy was a cut above. In 2014, Campari tried to amend the constitution to stay in power, but he was opposed by the Burkinabe public in certain parts of the military. He was ousted and a rocky transition ensued, concluding with elections in 2015. The U.S. played a supporting role throughout this process. In recent years, the United States has become very concerned about the terrorist threat in the country. This country has been overrun by extremists, resulting in the displacement of nearly one million people. The United States has been training local troops while underscoring its concerns about serious human rights violations by the military. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? Yeah, so you know, Nicole, when I prepare for these, I read all of these old oral history testimonies from foreign service officers. And This one's really from the history books, but I found that everyone kept talking about this USAID project in Markoy in the Sahel region. We wanted to teach the Burkinabe how to do cattle ranching, and it was a complete disaster. We kept having to spend all of this money on like high post and special wiring. We had to get it imported from Ghana, and eventually this 
small speck of land on a couple thousand acres were perfectly green. We brought the minister up from Upper Volta at the time, and he said, this is great. How many cattle do you have here? The U.S. official said 150. He's like, well, we have 4 million. Can you do this across the entire country? So I thought it was a great example of a white elephant project, a misunderstanding of the challenges in the Burkinabe or Upper Volta terrain, and sometimes that American naivete about how to teach people how to do things in quotes. Kamisa, maybe there's a lesson there, but what would you say should be the Biden administration's strategy towards Burkina? So just comparatively to other countries of the Sahel region, the United States doesn't have a big footprint in Burkina Faso. Over the recent years, the U.S. has provided assistance to Burkina-based civil society and government to facilitate the transition between Bless Compaoré's 27-year rule to a democratically elected regime. Now, with the increasing instability in the Sahel region and Burkina Faso being at the epicenter of this instability, the United States has increased its military cooperation with the Burkina Bay Army and is really pressing for the government to demonstrate strong political leadership in defeating the jihadists. I think the United States strategy in Burkina Faso should include an area that's often neglected in U.S. foreign policy in the Sahel, which is the development of economic opportunities in the region. The United States and other international partners in the Sahel do tend to focus on immediate security threats, which makes sense in some ways. But the root cause of most of the predicaments of the Sahel region is really the lack of economic opportunities and most specifically for its youth. So there are creative ways for the U.S. to do this. There are regional African structures, even some United Nations agencies or even the OECD that are well equipped to conduct some income generating activities in Burkina Faso. And I believe the United States should definitely make it a point that the creation of economic opportunities is at the center of its strategy in Burkina Faso and in the Sahel region. Okay, Nicole, so how do we make this happen? And in the interagency, how do you get USAID, state, DOD, and others to play nice and execute on this strategy? Thanks, Jed. Yeah, this is a challenging one, and one I will say that has been on the radar of US policy for a little while, but it would be one I would put on the list of in need of a refresh. So when we think about all of the challenges that the U.S. particularly cares about in Burkina, the collapse of security forces in the wake of violence and concern that that conflict can push down into coastal West Africa, which has otherwise been a fairly stable region, that really merits, I think, continued focus and in some ways increased focus. What we know about how the USG has approached to date from the interagency perspective has been primarily through the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership, which many folks may be familiar with. But the concept of this was to have a military diplomacy and development side. So again, really forcing the interagency to come together to do some of the development projects as much as the exploratory diplomacy and the military support. So to Kamisa's point, in retrospect, I think we got to a place where there was a surge in military focus there was not the economic development or other major development initiatives to go along with that at the same scale. And I think that has really hurt that country's ability to manage some of its challenges and our ability to be a really complete partner. So I think a sort of combination of taking a fresh look, a task force at TSCTP and how that may or may not be working in the region, picking up 
the military pieces that really do need to be expanded, I would argue, in some ways, logistical and op support in particular to the Sahelian countries through the G5, the countries in the region who are actively engaged in fighting violent extremists, increasing our diplomacy. So really thinking about, given the speed at which the region is being destabilized, to look at any possibility of political talks is obviously deeply fraught with extremist groups. But I think, again, having a group of interagency experts look at the no hold bards possibility, this is maybe the moment to do it. And then finally, just to underscore, Kamisa said it beautifully, we've got to bring some real development into this if we're thinking about being able to support Burkinabe themselves and the region. So Judd, given all that, do you have one big idea or a crazy idea to put on the table? I don't think it's a bigger crazy idea, but it's a point that is really important here. And that is that in contrast to some of the other countries in the Sahel, there is a vibrant civil society and have been a vibrant opposition that was really calling out the insecurity in a very serious way. And I thought that that would, has been one of the push factors for President Kabore to respond to this crisis, to reshuffle his government, to rethink about his budget. And the big idea or the crazy idea is that I'm a little worried that that doesn't exist. And many people may think that the recent decision to include Zephyrin Diabre, who is the head of the UPC as the Minister of National Reconciliation, is a good idea. And he's been doing some really important work reaching out to the former leader, Blaise Compore, about reconciliation. But I think his voice is missing now that he's in government. You know, there is less of a opposition leader or civil society figure on the outside, calling the government to task, pushing them to reform. And so I'm not suggesting he leave the government, but we really do have to think about what is the domestic ecosystem right now in Burkina to keep everyone honest and to keep the pressure on the human rights abuses, the insecurity and other challenges. So that's one thing that I definitely want to raise. I don't know, Kamisa, if you have a reaction to that. You know, Zephyrin Jabré was really the main opposition voice. And I do agree that once you enter government, it's really hard to be in that position anymore. And you become accountable to anything and everything the government does. And there is definitely a vibrant civil society that needs support. And I think we tend to be more focused on what the international community and international partners think about what is happening on the ground. But the first thing we need to look at is what civil society is doing, what they believe should be the way forward, and what do they need to succeed in making a democratic transition a success. Okay, Kamisa, this is the last question. What is FESPACO and why should we go when it resumes? Uh-huh. So FESPACO is the largest African film festival in the world. It takes place in Burkina's capital city every two years. FESPACO is also known to promote African filmmakers, and it contributes to the expansion and development of African cinema as a means of expression, education, and awareness raising. It's been in existence for over 50 years now. And the next FESPACO is scheduled to take place in October of this year in Ouagadougou. Well, if you're in the region, this is just a mind-blowing experience. I have attended the past two FESPACOs. The last one was in 2019. And you can see and watch every single African movie you can think about. 
Okay, that's the show. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to read more CSIS analysis, check out our website at www.csis.org backslash Africa.